All right, open your Bibles to John chapter 8, and God willing, we'll get through the rest of the chapter. So, Father, thank you for a new day, Lord, uh, Resurrection Day, Resurrection Sunday, and uh, help us to enjoy the abundant life, the new life that is possible because of the, your resurrection, and um, to walk in victory over sin, to walk in newness of life, to be free. And uh, as we're going to learn today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we read the, the, the section we're going to read, we're going to go through the second half. I wanted to recap last week and link it to the rest of the chapter because it's all one big conversation. So we finished off last week by looking at how a lack of humility or a prideful attitude can cause us to treat each other pretty poorly. So what is humility? And I think I might have said this last week, but my definition of humility is it's just an accurate or realistic view or understanding of ourselves. And what is pride? Well, pride is simply an incorrect view or understanding of ourselves. And we're going to look at that with the Pharisees. And it's pretty clear there. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is nothing more, I believe, than humbly seeing our sin for what it is in God's eyes, accepting our responsibility for the choices we make, and then choosing to change direction. Now, to do this, to see ourselves clearly and accurately, we need humility. So, humility and repentance go hand in hand. Sinners, from last week, sinners dominated by their sinful nature. Remember, we're all sinners, right? Um, We all still sin in that respect. Yes, we are saints as Christians. Not negating that fact, but we still have a sinful nature. So, when we are dominated by our sinful nature, we treat each other very poorly, often brutally. Even in the church, you see this. But you know where the most obvious place is, where pride is most obvious? I was thinking about this. Uh, it's in marriage, because that's the hardest place to fake it. Church is the easiest place, one of the easiest places. You're there for a couple of hours, and it's not so hard to pretend you're someone you're not. But if you're married, the most accurate assessment of what kind of person you are is your spouse. They see everything, and they tell no lies. So we learned or were reminded last week that the root cause of all these quarrels, arguments, fights, and heartbreak is pride, and that was when we read James chapter 4, 1 to 12. And I believe pride is the root of all sin, including the very first sin or act of rebellion, which was Satan. Yeah. Not going to go into it now, but pride is us being deceived concerning the truth of who we are or what we are really like and generally results in us thinking that we are better than others and therefore we deserve better or more than other people, just like Satan did. He was no longer content to be the most important angel, probably the worship leader in heaven. No, he wanted all the glory. He wanted people to worship him. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to make the rules. And he still does. And that's the lie that he gave Eve in the garden. So just like we read last week in James 4, 1 to 12, pride causes us to fight and war to get our own way. Look what Satan did, you know, he fought to try and get his own way. And we take no prisoners in our quest for instant happiness and self-gratification. We are not content, we have no peace and joy, we may get what we want, but we feel guilty and sad on the inside. And that is why I call Satan, and I've heard this from somewhere else, Satan is the great joy stealer. His promises are always empty and superficial. And this is what Jesus meant by walking in darkness. In John 8, 8, verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Remember, Satan is called the powers of darkness, isn't it? So what Jesus is saying here is that we can be free to walk in the light, to experience life and not death. And that's what we finished with last week. And I'll just read those two verses. It's verses 31 and 32 in John chapter 8. 
Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, last week we looked at the woman caught in the act of adultery. Uh, She was set up. And for me, this is an extreme example of pridefulness and cruelty. And Jesus didn't get upset that the Pharisees came along and brought this woman in. Instead, he turned it around and used it as a sermon illustration. So he used that as a picture of darkness and himself as a picture of light. Jesus, as I said before, is humble and they were proud. Now, how did their pride affect their behavior, their attitude? Well, there was not an ounce of love or compassion in their hearts. They were completely self-absorbed, selfish, cruel, hateful, jealous, very jealous of Jesus, boastful, and completely self-seeking. Why? Why was their behavior like this? Well, I believe it's all because their view of themselves was completely wrong. In other words, they were proud. And I'd like to take a minute just to compare how Jesus saw them versus how they saw themselves. Because this has really um, this just helped me to see what pride is and the dangers of pride. So first, how did Jesus describe them? Well, as whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones and a lot worse. But I'm going to read just one example of where Jesus describes the Pharisees and the scribes. It's on the screen. It's Matthew 23, 27 to 33. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Whew. Okay, now let's compare that to what the Pharisees thought about themselves. Okay, this is from a, a parable that um, Jesus spoke, but uh, it's found in Luke chapter 18, verses 11 and 12, and this is just a, a snippet from this parable. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as his tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, can you see a little bit of a discrepancy between how Jesus saw them, their real inner self, versus how they saw themselves? Okay, this is pride. This causes their behavior to be what it is. I don't think at the time there could have been a better example of people walking in darkness. I've been so completely deceived by their own sinful, desperately wicked and deceitful hearts. And there being such a wide disparity between their imagined state of being and their reality. You know, it's just incredible. Now, what should be shocking to us is that these people were the religious leaders of the day. These people were supposed to be the holy people, the the godly people. So this is the ultimate case of hypocrisy as well. And how kind it was of the Pharisees that they would come in just the right time at Jesus' sermon and provide a real-life illustration for him to present himself as the light of the world. So Jesus is the light, the source of light and of truth and life. And in your own time, you could read John chapter 1, verses 3 to 9, because John continually talks about Jesus being the light, the truth, and the life in different verses there. So unfortunately, this trend 
of hypocrisy continues in today's world, where, as the scriptures tell us, there will be religious leaders who would use religion as a cloak for covetousness and deception. So I'm going to read it from two different versions of these verses. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3. to three. So the New King James first. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Now, same verses from the New Living. It just brings it out, different um, aspects of it, uh, fairly clearly. But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you, that is, among the church. They will cleverly teach, not just openly, but cleverly teach, secretly teach, destructive heresies, and even deny the Master, the Lord, who brought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. That's happening, isn't it? All these televangelists giving us a bad name and others. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get hold of your money. So clear. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. So, in contrast to the prideful, blind, and deceived Pharisees, Jesus is the light, and he loved to the end with an unconditional, limitless, and perfect love. So, what is the source or reason for Jesus being able to love others like this? Well, it's his humility. Jesus' only description of himself is found in Matthew eleven twenty nine, when it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Notice that. For I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, I was reading this, and it just kind of jumped out at me. You know how God does that to you sometimes. Notice what Jesus requests us to learn from him. It's how to be humble. And now, I looked up, is there any other places in the New Testament where he asks us, Jesus asks us to learn something? There's three, but the other two are more academic. One's about prophecy, one's about something else. But this is where he asked us to look at his life and learn from him. And he only wants us to learn one thing, humility. Why? Because when we're humble, we are able to esteem or treat others as being better or more important than ourselves. We learn to put their needs and interests ahead of our own, Philippians 2, 3 and 4. And this is the key to loving people, to walking in the light, to being free. This is the key to freedom, the secret to dying to self. So Jesus said that he is the light of the world. There's only one. There's only one example of perfect humility and therefore perfect love, and that is God. And that's expressed clearly in the life of Jesus. So remember the scriptures say in several places that Jesus is a manifestation of who God is. He's a revelation of of who God is. So there is also only one source of humility, and that is Jesus or God. And uh, who is God? And we receive it as we follow or abide in him and his word. Now when we walk in light, we also walk in love. First John makes the connection between light and love, and the opposite, which is hate and darkness. And this connection is made very explicit. And I just want to read one example. There's many in First John, but just one, one verse. First John chapter 2, verse 10. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him, because he can see. Right? But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Prideful. It's pride. He's blind to who he really is, and therefore he treats others poorly. So, I'm talking about pride because it's obvious that the Pharisees are struggling with their pride. They're deceived. But we can be too. And I want to 
just make uh, establish this link between pride and darkness. That that's actually the same thing. Pride is so dangerous because it's invisible and deceptive. It's like you've got a tree and the roots are underground. You can't see the roots. But the branches it produces produce poison fruit. Now, we can try and get rid of the fruit by hacking the branches away, but what's going to happen? They just grow back, okay? So the root source of all the evil in our lives, I believe, is pride. It's a false understanding of who we are, and it's the opposite of humility. Pride is the ultimate underlying issue of the heart. You think of Satan's temptation to Eve. What was it? You can be like God. And most of us would say that we are humble, but I would suggest that we are all prideful to some extent. Even Moses, described in the Bible as the most meek or humble man who has ever lived, except for Jesus, he didn't go to the promised land because of what? I believe because of his pride. What happened? Well, he lost his cool when he struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it so that people could drink in the wilderness. Now, why did he strike the rock twice? Because he was angry. And why was he angry? Because of the way he was treated by the people. So I'll just read the account. It's um, it's just a couple of verses to (laughs) give you a glimpse of the stuff that he was going through. So it's Numbers chapter 20, verses 2 to 5. There was no water for the people to drink at that place. So they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Verse 3, the people blamed Moses and said, If only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people into this wilderness to die along with all our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place? This land has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, and no water to drink. Now, if you were Moses, would you start to feel the temperature rise? Yeah? Moses was falsely accused, unappreciated, unthanked, scorned, derided, mocked, and his leadership challenged multiple times. And at this point in his life, his humility was exhausted. His old man rose up and said, That's enough. After all the good that I've done for them, after all the prayers I pray for them, after all the work that I have done for them, after all the sacrifices I have made for them, I deserve better than this. How dare they treat me like this? I am so angry with them. Can you relate to Moses? Just a little bit? Can you empathize with them? Have you ever felt like him? When your kids treat you poorly, when your spouse or someone at work or you're falsely accused, whatever. And truthfully, I would have lost my cool a long time before Moses did. You know, he did so well to go so many years before he lost his cool. And I really admire him for all the what what he did. But Moses is still human. He's just a man. He had a sinful nature. And for a moment in time, just that moment, he forgot that he was God's servant and he started to think that he had rights. So why did God give Moses such a seemingly harsh consequence for his reaction to the people's complaining against him? Well, God wasn't angry with the people. It was Moses who was angry. And Moses was representing God. Now, as a comparison, consider Jesus hanging on the cross. Like Moses, he was falsely accused, unappreciated, unthanked, scorned, derided, mocked, and his leadership challenged multiple times. But not only that, he faced an unjust trial, he was wrongly convicted, sentenced to die the most painful death, and this was all nothing compared to him having to bear the wrath or absorb the wrath of the Father that would be poured out on him. Yet what was Jesus' response to the people as they were jeering and mocking him? Do you know what he said? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So the question I have here is the comparison between Moses and Jesus now. Why didn't Jesus react or get upset? I would say because there's no pride in him. He was completely humble. He completely and fully and perfectly understood who he was and what his mission was. So who was he and what was his mission? Well, he was a servant. He was sent to serve every man and every woman who would ever live. And so because he was a servant, it was his job to esteem their needs as being more important than his own. 
And the Old Testament clearly predicted that the Messiah would come as the suffering servant. I won't go into it now. And Jesus confirms it in the New Testament. So just one verse, Matthew twenty twenty eight. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And actually, there's one more. I lied. Uh, Luke twenty two twenty six. But among you it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course. But not here, but not here, for I am among you as one who serves. So think about this. What rights does a servant have? A servant has no rights, okay? When Jesus came down, Philippians chapter 2 tells us he gave up all his rights. Jesus gave up all his privileges, all his rights. He had no reason to deserve anything to get his own way. So Jesus hadn't forgotten who he was, that he was Lord of all that, and that he was God. He hadn't forgotten that. But he willingly gave up all his prestige and took on the form or role as a servant. Now, if you think, well, a servant must have some rights. Well, look at this verse with me. On It's um, Luke seventeen seven to 10. It says, When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of the sheep, does his master say, Come in and eat with me? No. He says, Prepare my meal, put on your apron, and serve me while I eat. Then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, We are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. That's humility. We can't say those words, I'm just an unworthy servant who have done, I've done what you've asked me to do, unless we're completely humble. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was saying, oh, I'm just an unworthy servant, just doing my duty, doing what the Father's asking me to do. That's why he didn't get angry with the people, because he's serving the Father. So what is our duty? To be an ambassador for Christ and to be willing to suffer persecution for his name's sake. John 15, 18-20 says, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. So what I'm trying to get at here, that to live the Christian life, we need humility. It is impossible to live the Christian life without humility. Because when suffering and persecution comes, and we do the work of the kingdom of heaven, when we do that, we don't get rewarded. When we suffer persecution, you know, if, if we've got this attitude of, I don't deserve to be treated like that, and we forget that we're just a servant with no rights and no privileges, then we react to those people. And we, when we fight back, instead of just taking it and rejoicing in it. So if we complain, that means that we are forgetting that we are Jesus' servants and that this is our calling, that this is what we signed up for when we asked Jesus to be our Lord and Saviour, and that the trials and hardships we go through are nothing more than God's tools to to refine us and transform us to be more like Jesus. And that's the other key, which I'm not going to talk about more this morning, but the trials are not there just to make us hurt, but to make us grow. That changes our perspective. This is a quote. Remember that if Jesus has never been our Lord, if there's been no repentance, no humbling of ourselves, no correction of our false image of ourselves, then he's not our saviour. Simple as that. Now for Christians, I like what someone said. Another quote. If Jesus is not Lord of all then he is not Lord at all. So this is what it means to walk in the light, to humbly submit to Jesus' Lordship of all our lives, every part, and live for him. One of my favorite verses, Galatians 
20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's not my life I'm living now. It's Jesus living through me. I just want to emphasize that it's not my life. Okay, that's the whole point of that verse. It's not my life. It's Christ's life living through me. I've given my rights up as a Christian. When we become Christians, we've given our rights up. We've given our rights and privileges up. Okay. If we are living for ourselves, it's because our pride is causing us to have a wrong or exalted view of ourselves and we are walking in darkness. Now, I'm not saying it's either light or darkness. I believe it's a continuum. The closer we grow to the Lord, the brighter His light or His glory shines on us, the more clearly we see our true natures, both good and bad. We continue to see how seriously vile, wicked and evil our old sinful nature really is and we rejoice at the fact that it's not going to be there much longer. But we also, on the other side, appreciate how much more beautiful and glorious the new man is going to become and is becoming. As we look into Jesus' radiant face and are transformed and transfigured by the Holy Spirit working in us. And I've got 1 Corinthians 13, 12 and 13. It says, Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. So you put this in the context of pride and humility. We are growing more and more humble as God reveals more and more to us. But we're not going to see everything perfectly until we get there. So there's always going to be a little bit of pride, a little bit of skewing of who we are. We're going to forget sometimes that we're the servant and that he's the master. So let's jump into today's text. It's going to be a fairly quick one because we've covered the main points already and I just want to go through and just um, finish it off. So uh, verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? 
He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar just like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. It's an amazing passage. It's just amazing. All right, let's jump into verse 31. I'm just going to look at this from a different aspect of what we did last week. I'm going to use a story from the Old Testament to help us explain these couple of verses as far as victory over sin. So, verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So, go back in the Old Testament to when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. They won the battle against Israel and they placed the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of their fish god, Dagon. And you find that in 1 Samuel 5 too. So the next morning, they entered the temple to find Dagon face down before the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Philistines helped their god get up, only to return the next day and to find him prostrate or that is laying down before the ark once more, this time with his head and his hands cut off. Something's got to go, said the Philistines, so they sent the ark back to the Jews. And that's a very short version of the story. So the ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. What's in the ark? Well, the law, the word, the word of God. Now, we might have some Dagon in your life, right in our lives right now, some addiction, some habit, some problem you've been trying to get rid of to get um, to to overcome, but the harder you try, the more frustrated you become. So the key is not to deal with the Dagon, the the God that's dominating you, whatever it is. Rather, bring in the Word of God. Study the Word. Stay in the Word. Obey the Word and watch what will happen to Dagon. Your idol will fall. It will fall prostrate before the Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to thy word. So, Jesus said in verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So, as saints in the kingdom of God, Remember that God's commandments are God's enablements or God's promises. Therefore, when he tells you to rejoice evermore, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, don't say, I can't because I'm hurting. When he tells you to love one another, John 15.12, don't say, impossible, you don't know my husband. No, when the Lord speaks, there's power in that very commandment that he gives. It's a promise. It's so simple. If we just do what he says, humbly, 
depending on him, you will find him meeting you at that point, empowering you to keep his command. And that's what we find throughout the New Testament. God gives a command and then enables the people to do what he's just told them to do. We have a choice. We can either choose to reject it and walk away or to believe it and obey. And we just need to say, thank you, Lord. I choose this day to receive your grace and obey your command, and then you will be free. And he whom the Son sets free is free indeed, free from lies, deception, the power of sin, and free to live an abundant life. Verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? (laughs) Really? What about in Egypt? Hundreds of years, baking bricks in the hot sun? What about if if you add all the years and judges up where they were um, in bondage, it was 305 years? Um, someone calculated that they were in bondage to seven different nations over that time. Um, what about in the year 722 when the Assyrians came and took the northern kingdom away? Then in 586 BC, the Babylonians came and took the rest of the people away, the southern kingdom, Judah. And even worse, at the same time, at a time that the Pharisees are speaking these words, they're in submission to Rome. Rome is controlling them. They're in bondage to Rome. They're paying their taxes to Caesar. They're not free. You see how blind they are? We are Abraham's descendants who have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you were made free? They can't see. Like, you know, if you put your hand in front of their face, they'd probably say, I can't see anything. All right, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, here's an example. Samson, because someone might say, well, I've sinned and I'm not a slave of sin. I can get away with it. It's not going to hurt me. Well, let's look at Samson. Samson took a Nazarite vow and he was not allowed to do three things. He wasn't allowed to touch a dead body drink wine, or cut his hair. Yet, he touched a dead body or a carcass. That was a lion in Judges 14, 8 and 9. He probably, undoubtedly, drank wine at the Philistine parties he attended. And the third thing, when Delilah cut his hair, he probably thought, ah, nothing's going to happen. I've got away with breaking my, my vow twice already. I don't think anything's going to happen to me now. But what happened when his hair was cut? Gone. Okay? The spirit had left him. Now, the spirit doesn't leave us. The spirit is always in us. But there will be consequences for our sin. Now, God doesn't judge us straight away often. He, he's very merciful. But what will happen is this. But if you fail to keep your word, then you will have sinned against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. That's Numbers thirty-two, twenty-three. So it says, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And verse 35, And a slave does not abide in the house forever. So the one who continually sins becomes enslaved to sin. It's like taking that first smoke of the joint or whatever. Then you need the second and the third. And sin is a cruel master. So by offering pleasure for a season, it is initially comfortable to serve in the household of sin. But sooner or later, sin eventually throws everyone out in the street. It's not fun anymore. Verse 35, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, What really struck me here is that it's the Son who makes us free. Freedom is a gift. It's grace. It's something that is done to us or for us. Therefore, we must receive it. It's that simple. The fact is that without the power of God working in us, through us, we can never be free. By my own experience, I can testify that the most frustrated and miserable person alive today is a Christian who has swallowed the lie, I can beat this, I can do this, if I just try harder, be more disciplined. No, no, no. 
being free from sin. And it's not about trying harder, using our own strength and resources, which in effect is us becoming more independent from God. Rather, it's learning to depend more on Jesus, to be more dependent, and we learn in a practical way the truth of Jesus, without me you can do nothing, in John fifteen five. So, to sum up how to be free so far from what we learned in John chapter 8, well, first we need to be a disciple of Jesus, the one who is disciplined in following and obeying him. Two, we need to abide in the word of God, the light to our path and the lamp for our feet. So it's those two things. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. So there's my father and your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. So here we come to this thing where Jesus says, I know you're Abraham's descendants, but then he says you're not Abraham's children. Is that a contradiction? Verse 37 says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. And then he says, I know that you are not his children. So in verse 37, it's referring to the physical offspring of Abraham, the people of Israel. So Abraham's descendants is literally descendants, physical descendants, biological descendants from Abraham. They are the Jews, you know, through Isaac and Jacob, etc. But Abraham's children is a reference to Romans chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul explains that Abraham's children refers to all who believe in God. It's the children of faith. Everyone who has put their faith in God for salvation is a child of Abraham. We follow Abraham, who put his faith in God. If you don't understand this, and some people make the mistake here, and this is one of the reasons why people have this idea that God's done with Israel, and uh, and they call this replacement theology, and they say that the church has taken the place of the nation of Israel, but it's not true. Abraham's descendants, Abraham's seed are always going to be there. God wants to work with them. But Abraham's children includes everybody who's born again. Verse 41. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. And again, we've talked about this insult or slur before. So move on. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. So, we talked about this before. Again, anyone who says, we love Jehovah, we love the God of the Bible, we love the God of Israel, but we don't love Jesus Christ as God. We don't worship him as God. Well, they don't really love God. It's that simple. Verse 43. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You can't understand what I'm saying because we're speaking two different languages. You're talking about worldly stuff temporary stuff, and I'm talking about eternal stuff, stuff you can't understand because you're blind. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Okay, is Jesus just being mean? Do you think he's just purposely trying to goad these guys? No. Scripture says that the wounds of a friend are faithful. Proverbs 27.6 Because only a friend cares enough to tell the truth. So Jesus is not being vindictive here. He's just telling the truth. His words are proving his faithfulness to them. He's using strong language because nothing less would get through to these guys. They need to be told the truth. They need to be shown how blind they are. 
But the important point here for us is that our spiritual parentage is what determines our nature and our destiny. If we are born again and have God as our Father, it will show in our nature we have a new heart with new desires and our destiny we're heaven bound. But if our Father is Satan or Adam, if we're still in Adam, then the old Adam, then it will show in our nature and destiny, just as it shows in these adversaries or the Pharisees. So the issue comes back to spiritual parentage. You are of your father the devil because they are the children of the devil. They do the things he does. It's that simple. They're in his image. Okay, They do the things he does. They lie and murder. The, the image of God has been corrupted. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. And we know that Satan is a liar. And you know why? Lying and is so dangerous because when we lie and try and deceive others, we're also deceived ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We're not just deceiving others, we also deceive ourselves. Verse 45, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? So, why don't you believe me? What wrong have I done in your sight? And this is the power of a pure life, a good testimony. Verse 46 again, and if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So Jesus' point is so well taken. His logic is so irrefutable that the Pharisees' only recourse is to resort to name-calling. they got no, nothing more to say, no more arguments. they got nothing... All their arguments have been dashed. they got nothing to say in their own defense. And so what do they do? They start calling him names. That's what people do today. So where do people go if they have the devil or Satan as their father? Well, if a person is born again, they go to be where their father is. Our father is who is Jesus' father, and we go to be with him in heaven. But if... You are not born again, and you are part of Satan's family. Then you go to be with your father, where when he goes to be in the lake of fire, his eternal home. Verse forty-nine. Jesus answered, "I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory." Here's where this humility comes in. What's the evidence that I'm the real thing? I'm demonstrating humility. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. Now, this is talking about the second death, where it's eternal separation from God, not the physical death. Because the Bible says in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.8 that our death is a transformation because the moment we close our eyes and when we die and we, we, our spirit leaves his body, we'll be with Jesus. And in seeing him, we'll become like him, First John 3, 2. Verse 52, Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus said, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me. That's really important that we allow God to lift us up and don't try and honor ourselves. Whom you say that he is your God, they're still deceived. They still don't understand that God is not their God. Their God, their Father is Satan. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar just like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So, when did Abraham see Jesus? Well, there's probably a few occurrences, but probably the main one is in Genesis 18, when Jesus comes along with two angels, appears to Abraham. Abraham prepares a little lamb and you know, a meal and stuff. And God, Jesus, tells him that the following year Isaac will be born. And then he goes on to tell him about Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 57, Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, 
and you have seen Abraham? So they understand what Jesus is saying here. I was around when Abraham was there. Abraham's talked to me. Abraham's seen me. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. And this is evidence that Jesus claimed to deity, that his, his, uh, he's telling them clearly that I am God. Remember that um, the word I am goes back to Exodus 3.14 and is used as a name as I am in as the name of God in Deuteronomy 32.39 and Isaiah 43.10. And it became the Tetragrammaton, which we translate as Jehovah or Yahweh. So Jesus is saying, I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh. I am God. And we've talked about that before. So just to finish off. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them. And he passed by. And next chapter we'll find that he found a blind man and he helped that man to see. And that's what Jesus does. That's what the truth does. So just to to sum up, remember, pride is deceptive because we don't realize that we have been deceived. That's why it's so dangerous. We don't know we're deceived. Only a relationship with Jesus, abiding in the word and being his follower or disciple will enable us to root out the pride or misconceptions that we have about ourselves. Only the Word of God has the power to do that. And now we understand that we all have some pride in us, that we don't see ourselves clearly or perfectly, then let us ask the Lord to show us and to make us humble. And I just want to read a couple of verses to finish and then we'll pray. First one is this, Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one, says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. I like the, that's the new living there. I like the way it uses the, the words repentant hearts. We need to be humble to repent. Isaiah 66, the second half of verse 1. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. That means they're obedient to the word of God. And a verse we probably all memorized, Micah 6, 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So that's the, the main point from today's sermon is, walk humbly with your God. The Pharisees were proud, and their pride kept them from coming to God, but as Christians, our pride can keep us from walking with God and keep us from enjoying that relationship. So humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Go deeper. Seek to grow in faith, hope and love. Father, I pray that we will be strengthened with might through your spirit in our inner man, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.